Um, finally, today we have a guest, a preacher, our very own RUF pastor at WashU just down the street, uh, S.J. Lim. S.J. has been a blessing to so many people at Memorial over the years and to so many students. He's been there for over five years now. He has been here at Memorial to preach. He has even baptized uh, one of our new members when she came uh, to make her public profession of faith and become a member. And today we get to receive uh, the Word of God from him from S.J. Lim, and so now I invite you to uh, uh, take a moment with me as we prepare our hearts for the preaching of God's Word. S.J. Morning. Um, man, so uh, it's so good to be here um, on this like Sunday where we get to hear about Keith's uh, engagement and um, the joining and receiving of, of new members and even a baptism. Um, I'm just thrilled to see the Lord uh, bring such joy and add to your number. Um, it's been a been a really uh, encouraging season of ministry uh, at Washu, and it's been uh, it's been great just being doing ministry kind of next door uh, to this church. Uh, thank you for supporting us and praying for us throughout the years. Um, the Lord's really. Uh, brought to our number as well, um, and it's been such an encouraging season of ministry. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm, I'm trying to get situated here. Uh, one of the deals of uh, of guest preaching is that uh, you kind of feel like you're in a new car. <laughs> you have to kind of adjust, uh, adjust the mirror and the seats, um, find out where the buttons are. Um, well... <clears throat> uh, I know it's February, and we're still kind of on the front end of a new year and, and really of a new decade. Uh, and if you're anything like me, you have all kinds of hopes and, and, and promises and, uh, and things you, you, you look forward to uh, in, in a new year and even in a new decade. But if you're anything like me, you also feel the frailty of your own self, and you realize uh, that old patterns reemerge, that things start to come undone. Um, and so I thought uh, we could look together in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and we'll look at just the first two chapters. Um, and I'm going to read for us uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And then later on, I'll uh, read the last couple verses of chapter 2. So if, uh, if I can just read the passage and then um, we'll, we'll dig in. Ecclesiastes 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. 
Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is God's word, and it's given to us for our good. Uh, let me just pray for us, and we'll continue on. Lord, your word is a light. We ask that you open our eyes and our ears now. Would you open our heart to receive your word, that we might not only see ourselves more clearly, but that it might brighten Jesus and sweeten the gospel for us. We ask that you would do the work of grace in our heart now. Pray this in Jesus. Amen. uh, Like I mentioned earlier, I've been doing ministry on a college campus, and I usually try to stay relevant, current in my illustrations, right? Contemporary, you know, stuff, right? But I'm going to kind of break from that a little bit and go back a little bit with Looney Tunes. You guys know that cartoon from long ago? Yeah? Okay, good. Bugs Bunny, right? Daffy, uh, Foghorn, Leghorn. Um, I was listening to a friend of mine talk about Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner. Uh, he said that he loved that cartoon because every episode you would see Wiley chasing the Roadrunner. You had no idea why he was or what he'd do with the Roadrunner once he did. But you can't argue that that dude had persistence. (laughs) And his creativity in the chase, right? I mean, he'd strap on rockets to his roller skates. He'd scour through the Acme catalog. He'd do sophisticated physics and mathematics. And he'd come up with all kinds of contraptions. He'd paint desert settings. He'd, He'd paint what looked like a false tunnel on a huge boulder, right? Trying to fool the roadrunner. Wiley Coyote. All he wanted to do in life was to catch the elusive roadrunner. And in every episode, he'd get crushed under an acme anvil or a boulder or fall off a cliff. And next week, you'd see him back in the chase again. Talk about devoted. He was restless until he got a hold of the roadrunner. And that was his answer. That was his answer. And it makes us question, what is the answer we've come up with for ourselves? What's our roadrunner? What's the thing that you're devoted to and you're creative about, willing to get crushed over and over again and get back into the hunt? You see, in Ecclesiastes, God is putting to question 
the answers that we've come up with for ourselves. Why are you so restless? Why are you chasing after the things that you are chasing after? God has come to question our answers. Now, Ecclesiastes is, is what's called wisdom literature. But it's not a text that we can just kind of cherry pick verses for advice, right? Like this isn't inspirational poster material. This isn't the horoscope. It's not fortune cookie stuff, right? You can't just make memes out of it. It's not how the book is intended to be read. It, it might even be dangerous to do that. I, I'll, I'll give you an example. It's kind of like a spoiler alert. Um, the very last verses of Ecclesiastes is in chapter 12. And he says, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard now. And this is, this is the author's conclusion. It says, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, all the secret things, whether good or evil. This is the conclusion of the book. But if you rip that out from the rest of the book, it's going to sound heavy and ungracious, right? It'll sound like a religion of works and duty, clubbing you like a taskmaster. You can't watch the end of a movie, right, and determine whether you like and agree with the character. You can't have the professor write down the solution on the board and you say that you, and say that you understand the problem. It's not going to make any sense. You don't have enough information. Ecclesiastes is a text that's kind of like building a case. Okay? Think of it more like a skillful attorney and he's putting together a masterful argument in court. And we're the jury listening in and considering the convincingness of this case. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 to 14 is the closing statement. I'll rest my case. So I'm going to frame the conclusion of the book in another way. What if the subtitles to those verses is this? Your life matters. And the reason it matters is because you matter to God. You matter to God. And so how we think about our life Fearing God rather than fearing ourselves or fearing anything in this world. And what we do with it to keep his commandments, right? These things suddenly become charged with meaning. That's a very different way to receive those verses, I think. This isn't fortune cookie material. Your life matters. It matters to God. But the opening verses to this book almost seem to deny that. So let's see how the preacher begins his case with his opening statement. He begins by telling us, basically, that you and I are restless. You and I are control freaks. But God cares about such people. God cares about control freaks, and there's wisdom for us. I'm going to just uh, divide our time in two simple ways. The first point is life under the sun. And then the second point will be life under the Son of God. So let's look at the first point, life under the Son. The preacher says that we are restless because this is life. We live under the sun, life under the Son. He, he, he kind of repeats this phrase over and over. He says this in verse 3 of chapter 1. And then again in verse 9. 
And then again in verse 14. And then three or four times in chapter 2, he says it again. What this means is we live in this finite and fallible world. And we've been kind of thrown into this existence and this world. And if we're honest, we're not all that sure what we're supposed to do with it. Uh Uh-oh. Like, I mean, maybe you were once a student, or maybe right now you're currently a student. Or maybe you're trying to figure out your work and your career. Maybe you're married. Maybe you're parenting. And all of this can be a bit of a rat race, right? You get, you got a bunch of people busy doing stuff. And you look to the left and then you look to the right and it seems like, well, they're doing it. I guess I should be too. I've been at WashU's campus long enough that, uh, around now, around mid-February, week, week four, week five, week six, and then basically till the rest of the semester, Without fail, if you just stand around campus long enough, you will hear the phrase from a student, I've got three exams and two papers. I got three exams and two papers. What's your version of that? Is it, is it the quarterly earnings report? Is it, is it all the grading and prepping you're doing as a teacher? Is it the diapers and after school programs, the, the performance reviews? The sports season, the, all the hockey games <laughs> that I heard about this morning that you're taking, your, you're shuttling your children to. How did our society, how did you and I get caught up in this rat race? At WashU, who, who told these students that, that their GPA and their internships and research positions, that these are the things that they are most supposed to search, to strive for? Who made these promises to them? Why do, why do they believe in it? Like, I'm betting that once upon a time ago, they didn't care about any of this stuff. Like, I really, really do hope that there is a five-year-old version of my students that didn't actually care about all this stuff. I'd be a little bit worried if they were, right? Like, they weren't weighing their life based on all this and how well they're keeping up. And whether we're talking about a campus or a city or a company or even a church, the race seems to go on. And so the preacher says in verse 3, life under the sun, what have we gained by all our toil? Verse 9, life under the sun, what's new? New news is just old news happening to new people, as G.K. Chesterton once said. Verse 14, life under the sun, It's like striving after the wind. That's an interesting phrase. Striving after the wind. Because this is actually a shepherding term. It actually means more like corralling. Corralling the wind. It's the herder, the rancher, corrals the animals back into the stable. Except instead of corralling animals, control freaks try to corral the wind. It's like collecting the wind and filing it into a stable. It can't be done. But that's what we do. If, if, if I eat and exercise, I can control my body. I can control my emotions. I can control how others see me, my desirability, even my longevity. If I land a good job or attain certain possessions, I can control my security, my reputation, 
and my purpose. If I curate my social media presence, if I, if I just have that perfect Instagram post or that, or, or that, that YouTube channel that gets a lot of views, I can be popular. If I map out my calendar, my schedule, I can control my mood, my productivity, my importance. If I can have certain relationships, I can control my needs and my loneliness. If I have the best parenting techniques, I, can, I, I might be able to control my children's behavior and who they become. You see, we don't live in the world of Harry Potter, but we use these things like spells and potions, right? Like if I have the perfect mix of ingredients and if I just say it the right way, I can manipulate the world around me to my, to my desire. But verse 15 says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. And what's lacking cannot be counted. What's crooked is crooked, he says. And what's not there, it's not there. You can't count it. We can't undo the fall. We can't undo Genesis 3. The fall of Genesis 3 has made life crooked in a way that we cannot undo. We cannot untwist the twistedness of life, not even the twistedness of our own heart. We cannot fill our hearts which lack something. What's lacking is God. Our hearts have a God-shaped hole and we try to fill it with everything else. And the preacher says, hey, I know this and I'm with you in this because I tried to fill my life with everything. I was a king and I had so much at my disposal. I know all about that life. If you read chapter 2 in its entirety, uh, it's really all about, all about the, the many things that he pursued. The things that he tried to make his life straight. The things that he tried to make his heart full with. He pursued pleasure and material things. He acquired all that was worth it. You see that in verse 1 through 11 in chapter 2. He pursued knowledge and learning. And that was verses 12 to 17. And then he pursued work and projects. That's verses 18 to 21. What, what he's basically saying is, look, I try to fill my heart with possessions, with women and substances. I, I try to collect a bunch of degrees and search philosophers and experts. I put in long hours at the office, invested in all kinds of enterprises. I, I try to attach my name to all kinds of projects and causes and philanthropy. Buildings were named after him. Solomon's temple. He wrote books. Some of them even made it to the Bible. Celebrities would come to take selfies with him, the Queen of Sheba. <laughs> right? He did all this, but he couldn't change life or world. He can only, he can only change things cosmetically. And he didn't know what to make of his life. Everything he did would fade or be given to someone else. You see, we're thrust into this world and unsure of what we're supposed to do with it. People start going. People start striving. So we start going. We start striving. And then what? There's an uncertainty about our life that perpetually haunts us. And sometimes we're kind of able to shove it off to the side and let it be just background noise. But in harder moments, I'm kind of there right now. Maybe you are too. It can, it can, it can be the only tune that we hear. What's all this for? What is really gained? 
the author identifies himself as the preacher, as Solomon, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And if you've ever read Ecclesiastes before, surely the opening words have stuck with you. Some translations say, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Other translations say, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. You know, if the conclusion is, life matters, that our life matters, what's up with this? Why does he say this? Well, I think it's actually a little bit of an imprecise English translation, or at least inadequate, right? There's no adequately corresponding word to our language. And so we try to best capture the spirit of it, but it's not quite there. The word in Hebrew is hevel. And if I can kind of be a little bit crude with the language, the opening words are hevel of hevel. All is hevel. Hebel of Hebel. The word Hebel actually means vapor. It's a puff of air. Uh, it's February, and so it's still cold enough outside where you can go out and see your breath in the cold air, right? And it's there for about a moment and then fades. You should go out tonight and do that and say, that is Hebel. That is life. Or at the beach, right? It's like the footprints that, that we leave behind, thinking that we've made our mark in this world, only to see it wash away. You actually know this word already. It's the same word used in Genesis 3. Cain and Hebel, or Abel, the son of Adam and Eve. Abel's life was but a vapor when his life was cut short, when his brother Cain killed him. Imagine Adam and Eve looking upon lifeless Abel, processing human death for the first time. Abel breathed his last breath. His life was Hebel. We are all Abels. Our life is too short. And deep down, we know that our time is limited. We might not go around saying, YOLO, you only live once, right? because it's cheesy. <laughs> but functionally, we do a lot of YOLOing. You only live once, right? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that, that man does it. <laughs> we cope with life in all kinds of ways. Sometimes we numb ourselves. Sometimes we go to escapist things, vices. But most of the time, we set ourselves towards striving. Towards striving. Verse 14 and verse 17. We look for something on this earth, this life under the sun, to be busy with. We find something we can anchor ourselves to, that if we can just tether ourselves, maybe this uncontrollable life will seem a little less uncontrollable. So we strive toward career and success and romance and wealth and education and leisure. But listen to verse 4 to 11. He says, look at nature. And then look at ourselves. It seems to be like this endless cycle. There's a whole lot of activity. There's a whole lot of busyness, but not a lot of progress. It's kind of like the treadmill, he says. like You keep running and running, but you're still standing on the very same spot. You can't defeat the treadmill. It always has another step for you to take. Uh, 
I don't know if you remember Madonna. You seem to remember Looney Tunes. Um, if you don't know Madonna, like think of who Beyonce is to our like culture right now, pop culture right now. Or if you watch the Super Bowl, imagine like J Lo and Shakira together. But she was like even bigger than both of them together, right? She said something once that um, was really powerful. She said this, I have an iron will, and it has always been to conquer the horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me. Always pushing me. Because even though I've become a somebody, I still have to keep proving it. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. This is life under the sun. It is always three exams and two papers. Three exams and two papers. So much striving, so little progress. What good news is there for the restless, for control freaks who live a life where all is hevel? I'm going to read just a few verses in chapter 2, starting in verse 22 of chapter 2. What has a man from all the toil, all the pleasures, all the knowledge, all the labors, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity, also helpful. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and is striving after wind. Fortunately, the preacher slips in a few verses at the end here, and he's injecting his first portion of wisdom. I don't know how much he saw of it yet, but he saw, but here we begin to see life under the Son of God. And here in verses 24 to 26, he finally understood the right question to ask. Who do I belong to? Who do I belong to? Because if you know who you belong to, if you know the relational question, then you start to know the existential question. What is this life for? And so Solomon tells us, because we belong to God, we are finally free. We're finally free to work and to eat and drink, to actually find to find joy. We don't need to fear being not in control. We belong to the one who is in control. And this frees us. We start to trade control for contentment. If you know you can't control life by work or by possessions, you can start to simply enjoy the things that God has given to you. Verse 24 says, We can trust that everything is in God's hands and and nothing is done apart from Him. Only if you recognize that life is hebel, that, that our time is fleeting, 
then you'll see it for what it really is. You'll see that your life, your time, is precious and beautiful, even though it's fragile. And at the, But at the same time, it's not in danger of being insignificant or pointless because God has chosen to use it. It's only discouraging when we think we can control our life. And so, so where is our encouragement in a life that's hevel? When we see that our lives aren't about controlling it, but our, our lives are about pleasing God and receiving what we have as gifts from Him. And I think we have a clearer vision of this than Solomon ever did because we see how Jesus pleased the Father. Jesus knew how heavy this life is. He knows how it's like shepherding the wind. But he entered into the hebbleness of life, if I could say it that way. He entered into it with us, showing us how to receive all things. And then, and then, he actually shepherded the wind. When the wind and storm came, he hushed it with just a word. He actually corralled, he tamed the wind. When death itself came, he tamed that too. If life is a breath, the gospel writers tell us, tells us that Jesus breathed his last breath too. He knows our life. And he tells us to find our life in belonging to the Father. Solomon asked, is there ever anything new in this world? And Jesus says, I did one thing new. I resurrected. That's never been seen or done before. I made straight what was crooked. I made your lacking heart full. And in doing so, he gave to us a new kind of life, one that's full of meaning. We can live it to please God as Jesus has already lived out the pleasing life ahead of us. I have a friend named Greg who likes to say, you know, Jesus has already lived this week perfectly for you. He's already lived this week up ahead of us perfectly for you. And so you can go and rest in that. This life is about giving ourselves to the one who has controlled this life, who's in control of you. We can know a lot of things, and it's okay we don't know everything. We can live a long time, and it's okay we don't live as long as we'd like. We can work and accomplish a lot, and it's okay that our work doesn't last forever because God because God has, has undone the fall. And he's making straight what's crooked to give our hearts what's lacking because God can turn our sin and make us clean. He can turn our striving and use it for his purposes. And so Ecclesiastes 1-2 to tells us that life is like a puff of air. But this is not a problem for the Christian because it drives us to God and lets him be in control. You see, biblical wisdom is not about how to manage life. Biblical wisdom is about how little we can manage life. But there's a God who can hold us, who tells us to eat and drink and labor for him and with him. As we continue on in this year, will you look to Jesus again and let him go 
into this year with you? Will you trust that He wants to do something with your life this year? Perhaps something greater than you had hoped for yourselves. I'm going to end with just one last illustration. Uh, I don't know if you know the name Yusaku Maizawa, but he's a, he, he's a young billionaire. Uh, and he's been in the news a lot in the last couple of years. Firstly, you might recognize his name because he's the very first in line to go to the moon on Elon Musk's SpaceX rocket ship. Okay? Super cool. Secondly, just, just like a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, he basically said he's going to give away uh, $10 million uh, because he wants to do a social experiment. He's giving $10,000 to basically 1,000 people that are Twitter followers of his. And his social experiment is, does money really increase happiness? He wants to know. The third reason he's been in the news is because he's been snatching up a lot of the hottest art pieces at the auction block. Uh, just a couple years ago, he, he, he won a $110.5 million Jean-Michel Basquiat painting, painted in 1982, called Untitled. $110.5 million painting. Look, he described his feelings of how the bidding went at the auction house. And interestingly, as the bids went past $60 million, this is the interesting part, he said that his confidence actually grew. I don't know about you, but if I'm spending that kind of money, certain muscles in my body would start to tighten. <laughs> uh, but he says that he was not anxious at all. He knew what the other bidders also knew. He knew exactly what he was getting. Something that mattered to him. Something of great value. And when he came into possession of the painting, he went on Twitter and he tweeted this out for the whole world to hear. Today, I am a lucky man. Today, I am a lucky man. When Jesus came to pay the price for us, he knew exactly what he was getting. People that matter to him. Do you imagine Jesus saying something like that? Today, it is finished. Today, I am so lucky. You and I invited out of a life under the sun into the life under the sun, Jesus. And I hope that's good news for control freaks. Let's pray. God, we give thanks that you know all about our life. You hold it in your hands. And even in our weakness, you come to assure us Lord, I pray for any of us who are struggling, who are doubting, who are fatigued in this life. Would they drink from the waters of Jesus once again and find life in Him? Lord, help us this week as we face the things that we have to face. May we learn to rest in You a little bit more. We pray this in Jesus. Amen.